Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Carrie Compton, and with me today is Ferris Professor of Journalism, Kush Chowdhury, Princeton Class of 2000. Kush has extensive experience as a reporter in the United States and in India. After emigrating from Calcutta with his parents at age 12, he had always longed to return, and once he graduated from Princeton, he did just that. Back in Calcutta, he took a job reporting for a well-established English newspaper called The Statesman, which at the turn of the 20th century had the largest circulation in all of Asia and still held enormous sway within the city. In 2017, he published a book called The Epic City, The World on the Streets of Calcutta, which is part memoir, part reportage about his beloved and in some ways broken hometown. This semester, Kush has returned to Princeton as a lecturer in the journalism program. Kush, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the question that everyone is dying to know. How does it feel to be back in Princeton? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I just finished teaching uh, yesterday, yeah. and so it feels great. That part of it, you know, it's been a very emotional experience to be back. Uh, How so? Well, I taught the class that I took 20 years ago okay. with John McPhee. Wow. It's called Literature of Fact. Uh-huh. And I was one of 16 students uh, in the spring of 99. Um, and that course really set me on the path of becoming a writer. And so to come back 20 years later and teach that class to a group of you know, students um, you know, is, a, is a tremendously powerful and uh, I think uh, it's an emotional experience because you are returning but you are also not returning to the same place. You are hoping to propel others in the way that you were propelled mm-hmm. when you were in their position, right? Um, and you don't know what you've done because you won't know for another 20 years. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. So talk about your writing career after you left Princeton and how that's kind of worked itself out. Well, um, so yeah, I graduated in 2000 and I went to Calcutta to work for this paper, The Statesman, that you mentioned. And um, at that time, it was sort of a, it was still the largest paper in India, in in Calcutta, Mm. Um, maybe in all of Eastern India, the largest English paper, you know. But it was a paper in decline. Um, It was slowly kind of... uh, uh, you know, um, it was not able to attract new readers. You know, the uh, the economy of the country had, had been had changed, or it was changing, and and the paper was not able to kind of keep up with those changes, mm. um, because they were changing the media landscape as well. Mm. And uh, so it was a dying paper, and and the city of Calcutta was, uh, a you know, was seen as a kind of dying city. That you know, it had been the capital of the British Empire until the 1970s. It was the largest city in India. It was the industrial center of India. It was seen as having, you know, having had the best universities, the be- you know, the best institutions in many ways. Um, but it was no longer the capital of India. It wasn't even the, you know, the industrial capital of India. Um, it was an, in, it was a post-industrial city. You know, the factories had sort of sh- largely shut down for about twenty years. Um, and so, and it was a city that people were migrating out of, by and large. You know, mm. most people who were my, I had a lot of family in Calcutta. Um, I still do. And uh, most of the people in my generation had, had left or were trying to get out. Mm. So I was like on the, you know, I was in the wrong uh, direction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then. Uh, so you worked there for how long? Two years. And then I left and I came back to the U.S. and I went to grad school. I did a Ph.D. in political theory at Yale. And I did that for about five years. And uh, but I had this idea of writing a book about Calcutta. Mm. And so I would keep going back in the summers 
And then at the end of that, I had a fellowship for a year, and then that's when I went back. And the book that I that I that I wrote is really about. It's set in the framework of that year, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I spent that year sort of you know reporting on various parts aspects of the city, things that I felt that kind of escaped me as a reporter. So, so talk about. Um, what the newsroom looked like in the Statesman uh, when you returned in the 2000s. And then let's talk about what it looked like when you went back the second time for your fellowship and you took a little tour. Yeah, well, the, the newsroom, you know, the newsrooms were like, <laughs> I think all newsrooms were like, first of all, you could smoke. Um, I mean, everybody smoked. And the people who weren't smoking might as well have been smoking because, you know, they were right. surrounded by smoke. These are air-conditioned, you know, closed rooms where you're sitting there all day surrounded by people who are smoking. Uh, I just can't imagine that. Now, I used to smoke. Uh, but not only did you smoke, but you couldn't imagine putting out a newspaper if you didn't smoke. Mm. I mean, how were you going to write? Like, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the whole, you know, the synapses would not fire if, <laughs> if you weren't, like, constantly smoking. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, and so, so it was that kind of a, you know, smoke-filled, a lot of, a lot of, like, very macho kind of places, you know, yes. newsrooms. A lot of, you know, guys cursing and, you know, and very male. And a lot male. of guys, A lot right? of guys. I mean, well, n- not only just men, but also bodies. I mean, the newsroom you describe in your book, it sounds like you've got people everywhere. Yeah. It's not that way anymore. No, I guess it's not. Yeah, it's people everywhere and people coming through also. There's whole, there was this whole culture, like, around 5 o'clock, I write about that, you know, when work, you know, offices are kind of, you know, um, shutting down, you, uh, a lot of times, people just come in. Uh, to the newspaper office and and hang out, you know, yeah. people who worked in you know in the city government, people who were whatever hangabouts, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then you would kind of have this kind of salon going on mm-hmm. in the newsroom, and then sometimes that would move on to a bar. And uh, at the time, the paper also had this like huge other infrastructure, which was that the newsroom was only a small part of like the hundreds of people that worked at the paper. Mm-hmm. You know, there were people who were like like gophers, like peons, literally like like whose job was, was to like take papers from one room to another room. Wow. There were uh, like cooks. There were like these like waiters who would come and like serve you tea. You know, um, there were just hundred lift men, like elevator operators. Right. You know, uh, guards. And a lot of these guys had been like like they're like the third generation. You know, their fathers had done it, their grandfathers had done it. So, you know, um, it was almost like a like a fiefdom. You know, that wow. they were running. Uh, which is one of the reasons the paper declined because you had to, you know, pay a lot of salaries. So what happened when you went back? How how many years later was that? So when I went back in two thousand eight, this is what maybe five years later. Yeah, five six years. Not a long time later, but the building had become a, a shell. It, it, it looked like those uh, shells of factories you see, you know, like mm. you know, even here, like uh, you know, if you. If you go into any of these posts, like Trenton or Philly, you see these shells mm-hmm. of fa- factories. Just a, you know, a structure that is up, but there's nothing. You know, you look through and there's nothing inside. Yeah. And that's what the building looked like because they had leased it to uh, a, a foreign company to build a mall, but then they had all these like issues with permits, and they so they had like torn down all the walls and all the you know, all the all the stuff inside, but they hadn't rebuilt anything. Mm. So you would you know, walk through basically the, the shell of the old Statesman building and all the way at the very top, on the topmost floor, they had held on to a couple of rooms, which is where the newspaper was. Wow. You know, and it was like essentially walking through a metaphor of the newspaper. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was tremendously depressing. I, I think I went there maybe once or twice and then I, uh, I couldn't bear to go back. People will often ask me, is the Statesman still around? You know? Wow. You know, uh, because it is still around. But... Uh, it 
it couldn't keep up. I think, you know, it newspapers changed in India. They became basically vehicles for selling consumer goods, selling real estate, and selling a certain kind of lifestyle, mm. you know, um, which from the 90s, you know, you know, globalization kind of came to India. And mm. it, it came to Calcutta a little bit late because Calcutta had a communist government. Also, it was a city in economic decline. You know, the, mm. the, the like I said, the factories had shut down. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a lot of manufacturing happening. Uh, but still, you know, that wave eventually came to Calcutta in the, by the 2000s. And mm-hmm. the kind of media that came with it was very different. You know, that media had to had to be uh, ha- had to be a vehicle to sell you things. You know, that was the main reason for its existence. Hmm. So you see things like you know the other newspapers will now have not only advertisements on their front page, but they will have like a, a covering page mm-hmm. uh, on top of the front page, mm-hmm. which will be a full ad, mm-hmm. say of a new high rise apartment complex, mm. right? Um, so the front page is really you know uh, an advertisement. And then you open that, and then the second page is the front page, which might have some news. Mm. Um, but the way that that structures how reporting happens, you know, is is very clear, which is that the advertising drives the reporting. You know, and I think the first paper to figure that out was the Times of India, and which is the you know the largest paper in India, and, and they were very open about it that they're you know that this is the model um, that we have, and um, and other papers have kind of tried to figure out how to you know how to follow that model, right? So when you say the advertising drives the journalism, do you mean that advertisers are pitching stories, approving stories? Sometimes advertisers pitch stories. I mean, and that happens, I think, um, in different ways. It happened even in the old newspaper system. But what happened, I think, it, since the the 90s was much more sophisticated, which is that if you understood uh, what the interests of your advertisers were, then you would report accordingly, mm-hmm. right? So there were things and people, there were subjects you would not touch and there were people you would not touch. Okay. And what has happened now politically is, uh, which is very interesting, is that uh, there are political figures you don't touch mm. because they are connected to your advertisers. And so the politicians don't have to directly tell you not to, not to write about them. They can just take away. They can just lean on their, uh, you know, corporate supporters, who will then pull out their advertising. So it's. Uh, so the watchdog function has all but been abandoned. Yes, and it's a very interesting way in which the watchdog function has been abandoned. There's a, you know, one of the, uh, one of the senior politicians who uh, used to be with the ruling party, but now is like a disaffected, Arun uh, Shori is a disaffected kind of independent voice. You know, he's. Uh, Oftentimes he he will will say things which are you know other people are afraid to say. He said you know there's an old Zulu proverb that if you want to uh, uh, shut up a dog, you just put a bone in its mouth. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what's happened to the media. Mm. You know, you don't need to muzzle it; you just need to put a bone in its mouth, right? Right. And so it's very interesting because the media is thriving. You know, interesting all forms. Yeah, well, then print media. Um, I mean, compared to the U.S., it's thriving. You know, um, uh, the TV media is thriving. I mean, you know, right now at this present moment, the economy is not doing as well as it was doing a few years ago, and so there have been some cuts and this and that. But, but by and large, you have expanding readership, and also the fact that these are vehicles by which you know um, advertising happens right mm-hmm. means that you know there's a th- there's you know a lot of advertising 
there's a lot of advertising money, you know, that, that continues to be poured in. Uh, it's not at all like the, the picture of, of uh, newspapers and print media in this country. Yeah, right. It's yeah. interesting. It's like what we used to have, just minus any real teeth. Yeah. So so that's the interesting thing. You know, in the 70s, there was a period um, called the emergency when newspapers were censored, um, mm. where uh, democracy had been suspended. And at that time, the newspapers uh, uh, used to have to go through censors and you would see, you know, um, things would be, you know, blacked out or cut out. You couldn't publish. So none of that is happening right now. Mm. There's no official censorship uh, of newspapers. Uh, but there is clearly unofficial censorship that mm. is going on. And and sometimes when somebody breaks the rule, you see the consequences very quickly. Mm-hmm. You know? It's a big country, and the media landscape is very large, right? Mm. So there are media outlets who are not doing this. The... And because their funding sources are different hmm. or because they have an ideological uh, position of doing journalism. Hmm. Um, and so one, you find, for instance, certain regional newspapers who have their own kind of advertising uh, um, uh, uh, resources right, mm-hmm. or sources that are not connected to the ruling party, hmm. um, you know, often connected to other parties, okay. you know, are, uh, uh, are able to function. Um, then you have certain online um, uh, uh, media outlets now that have money from foundations or non, you know, they have nonprofit sources of, of funding, so they're not reliant on advertising that are doing very good journalism. Uh, you have a few other media outlets like the one that I used to work for um, uh, called, uh, called The Caravan, which is a long-form magazine that mm. has done a lot of really good stuff. Uh, and I think the reason that they're able to do it is because they are not reliant on, they're much smaller and are not reliant on very large uh, uh, corporations for their funding. Um, What's the state of television media? Do you have a CNN and a Fox News, for instance? Yeah, it's really funny. Yeah, there is. There is television, uh, CNN and Fox News. But it's like, it's like CNN and Fox on steroids because they have like, they have like, um, you know, the TV screen. I think here usually they'll like partition it into three sections, you know, with three guys. Sure. There they'll partition it into like twelve, <laughs> you know. And, it's like Hollywood squares. Yeah, exactly. It's like Hollywood squares, and just people yelling. It's like twelve guys who come on, and they're just yelling at each other, and and you know, and it's it's just a it's just a a show. I mean, it's just completely, uh, you know, some of those guys are sometimes. You know, they're like prize, you know, they're like the, you know, the Harlem Globetrotters used to play the Washington Senators, mm-hmm. you know, and those guys are like paid to come on and look like fools, right? Mm-hmm. And there are people like that who come on, you know, on these oh. shows at night uh, who are paid to look like fools. Um, I think that there are elements of that on, on, on MSNBC and Fox, but it's just that on a much more exaggerated scale. There are a couple of shows that don't do, don't do that. There's a guy named Ravish Kumar who has a show... Um, on NDTV, which is in in Hindi, which is very courageous, he himself I think has done a lot of you know excellent reporting. But but those people are constantly targeted. I mean you know I mean he's faced death threats. There are various ways in which his uh, reach has been kind of limited in the last uh, five years. But by and large, this is what the TV media landscape looks like, and the people who have been very successful in it are the people who have been the most. Uh, circus-like, mm. you know, um, and who have played into the most uh, sort of unthinking, jingoistic uh, 
you know, uh, impulses of the public. You know, you have to if you're on 24 hours a day, you know, and you know, you have and you're screaming all the time. Mm -hmm. You have to just be more and more outrageous, you know, mm -hmm. to get people to watch you, you know. So I don't watch the TV news because when I watch it, it's funny because when I sometimes when I'll turn on the TV news, I just can't believe that people are watching this. Mm. You know? Right. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, like, how can you possibly bear to watch this? This is crazy. Like, you know, like nobody in real life, you know, sits in a room with like 12 people who are just yelling at each other. Yeah. You know? Right. So describe social media. In what ways has that transformed the landscape? Um, is it keeping people better informed? How does it work there? Well, look, there's good things that have happened with social media. I think in the same way that they've happened here. One nice thing about social media is that it's global. You know, um, so something that is happening in in you know in Turkey and London and New York, you know, in Delhi are all happening at the same time in the same space, right? So the way that that plays out, for instance, when the uh, the Me Too movement started happening here, mm -hmm. right? There was a whole social media um, uh, uh, explosion of of Me Too uh, stuff. That happened in India. No kidding. Right? Yeah, um, in India, it wasn't mostly to do with people in the film industry. It was other industries, including the media. So I think you know, I, I don't see how that would have happened without social media. Okay. Because one of the challenges with a story like that um, is that you don't traditional media is beat based. That that beat doesn't exist, mm. right? <laughs> There's no Me Too beat. Mm -hmm. You know, so you don't have anybody covering that, and therefore it doesn't exist as a story. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so there are positives, but there are also huge negatives, which is um, that social media has been, A, it allows in the same way that it allows here, um, it allows political leaders to basically bypass, uh, you know, any media uh. and just directly tweet. Mm -hmm. So we, you know, the prime minister just, you know, in India just, just tweets you know, he doesn't hold press conferences. Um, uh, I have friends who say, you know, it's really hard to cover, the, you know, the ministries because, you know, <laughs> the prime minister is reporting on your story before you get a chance to report on it. Right. Right. Um, but uh, he, he tweets and he does radio programs where they're not like call in. It's just him talking, you know. Uh, it's a one way communication. And so you can amplify your voice uh, in an unmediated way in the mm -hmm. same way that, you know, um, Trump can here. But... The other thing of it is that you can spread rumors and misinformation just much more effectively, and you can organize people around these rumors. You can create mobs, for instance. You know, mm. you know. I mean, here I think you know, like flash mobs are this like quirky thing where people you know like get together and dance or whatever it is. Sure. But you can also do that uh, to be like, let's get together and you know lynch somebody, and that has been happening. Mm. You know. Um, so, which forms of media are they? In social media are they interacting with the most? Uh, Twitter and uh, and WhatsApp. WhatsApp is huge in India. Everybody has WhatsApp. And WhatsApp is used in a way that it's not used here, where lots of, I mean, if, if you exist, you need to have WhatsApp. So I don't have Twitter or Facebook or any kind of social media. I'm pretty, uh, uh, pretty much a dinosaur in that way. But I need to have WhatsApp because, you know, um, if you're doing any kind of work, uh, a lot of that will be done in WhatsApp. People send you documents on WhatsApp. They'll, huh. they'll like, you know, um, they'll, like, text you on WhatsApp. Yeah. Uh, sometimes if you have to interview somebody who's not there, you'll interview them on WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll call them on WhatsApp because it's all free, right? Mm. Um, so, uh, and so lots of interactions happen on WhatsApp. And until recently, there was this perception that WhatsApp was not um, 
being uh, monitored. Um, okay. Right, because you have the, the, the whole idea was that there was end-to-end -end encryption, uh. so you couldn't monitor what was being you know um, sent over WhatsApp. Um, unlike you know uh, what you're sending by email or something like that. Okay. Uh, that's not true now because I think there's like this Israeli company that has, that's hacked WhatsApp. Um, uh, so a lot of political groups would also use WhatsApp because there was this idea of privacy. Hmm. But WhatsApp is, I mean. If you're living in India, like you wake up in the morning and you're like, you know, you're like elderly retired relatives will send you like good morning messages on WhatsApp every morning. Wow. You know, with like a photograph of a sunrise or like a <laughs> smiling baby or something, you know. Yeah. And then they'll send you like little videos of whatever, you know. One of the things uh, that's also affecting America and India alike is press freedoms. How is that going now that we have um, Narendra Modi and his uh, quite authoritarian regime in power. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's a, like I said, there's a huge curtailment of press freedom. Um, and uh, look, there's always been media that has been close to power. In every country, there, there is media that is, you know, that, uh, that is close to power. But there is a, uh, but there, when Modi came to power, what happened was, I mean, so even before when the Congress was in power, there were journalists that you knew were sort of Congress journalists, you know, that they were they were pro the government. Right. Mm -hmm. But now you have almost like a whole section of the media that is blindly a cheerleader of this uh, of this leader. Right. Mm -hmm. And and they are, um, you know, so and, and and there's a lot of you know, there's a there's largesse, you know, there's mm -hmm. things to be gained by doing that. Um and so there's a very special kind of relationship uh, that there's a there's a, wa a word that uh, Ravish Kumar, the journalist that I was talking about, who's on on NDTV, has a has a word in Hindi called Godi media. Godi literally means lap, mm. so it's like not watchdog media, but lap dog media. You know, these are these are uh, media people who are like lap dogs of the state, which I think is a, is exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is a big contingent of people who are like that. You know. Um, you know, when Stephen Colbert used to be uh, on, he he would often have this thing like Bush, great president or greatest president. Yeah. You know, and there's there are books like that that keep coming out, and oh. so, uh, and uh, which means that there are people who are willing to write them, and then there are people who are willing to publish them, right? And people willing to read them. And people, of course, are people willing to read them. Yes. Mm. Um, and then the rest of the media, I think, by and large, knows that you go along to get along because. If you are openly critical, you, you can be critical of, of things at a, at a lower level, at the state level or at the levels of lower government. But if you're critical of Narendra Modi or Amit Shah, um, you know, then and at one point Arun Jaitley, who were the number one, two, three, mm. uh, then uh, you will have consequences. And uh, it could be that there will be an income tax rate on your house or on you know um, your media establishment, or it could be that you're advertising. Uh, money will suddenly dry up because mm -hmm. the people who are funding you uh, are uh, also uh, in, have a very close relationship to the government, mm. right? And um, and so there is a huge chunk of media that I think is not particularly uh, enraptured with Modi, but they know which way they're they're you know their bread is buttered and they're mm -hmm. not they're not do doing anything to speak out. And then there are people who are speaking out and they are few and they're very brave and I, I have friends who are investigative journalists uh, who are extremely courageous and and keep writing and I think history will you know when we look back on this time you know history will uh, uh, they will be uh, vindicated you know mm -hmm. you know because they will have maintained the record of, of this time 
Yeah, but this is not a good. This is not a good time uh, at all to be a journalist. I think physical danger that you have. Um, journalists get threats, um, but I think the physical danger that you have in the capital city of Delhi is still limited in the sense that um, you could still be uh, picked up and arrested. Um, but I think the chances of uh, that is not something that or or you know, or harmed or killed or whatever. Um, all the things that can happen to a journalist, I, that has not been happening in the city of Delhi. But once you leave the city of Delhi and, you know, uh, attacks on journalists outside of, of the capital, there are lots of attacks on journalists. Um, you know, uh, people who are working in small towns, people working in other regional cities, uh, a bit away from the public eye. Um and actually not even small towns. In Bangalore, which is one of the largest cities in India, um, there was the attack on Gauri Lankesh, who was a journalist, who was openly uh, against this government. And, uh, you know, one morning uh, two guys came and, and shot her, you know. Um, and I think that was a very scary, I mean, it was a very tragic event that happened. It was also in a long line of assassinations that had taken place of prominent uh, uh, intellectuals you know, professors, activists um, in that area. But this was the first person of that prominence who was a journalist, and that became, I think, a, a, that became a big rallying cry for journalists because, you know, when you kill a journalist, every journalist, you know, understands that that's a, that's a message that is being sent out to you, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah, it's a scary time. I, I'm, sca- I'm scared. Like, I would not r- write all kinds of things. I, I'm just not brave enough, you know. I, I have friends who do it, but I would not write all kinds of things because I'm simply um, scared, Hmm. you know? Yeah. Do you think that this is attributable solely to um, the authoritarian nature of Modi, or do you think that there is some sort of knock-on effect of um, the blatant disregard for press freedoms that Trump is constantly spouting himself? I think that it's like what you said about how if, you know, the books are published, because there are people to read them, right? Mm-hmm. So there has to be a public that is willing to to go along with this, right? Uh, that is willing to believe that, you know, this version of reality is more appealing to me than some other version of reality that, mm. the, that, that the press is offering, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I think there is, a, there is a public that is like that, you know, present right now. But that said, I think that that public can be fickle, you know? Mm. You know, I think part of it is that uh, uh, that you don't know what's going to happen. People are willing to suspend their kind of credulousness, you know, uh, credulousness, mm-hmm. and and sort of uh, just believe things that they would like to believe, as opposed to you know, inconvenient facts. But I, I think that's not necessarily a permanent effect. And I'll tell you why. I think that a lot of times what you find is that, and I think social media is is a good. Um, uh, forum for this, you find that new facts arise, you know, and that resonate with lots of people, right? And uh, and then they spread, and then they open up a, a kind of a new kind of conversation about a new reality, right? Mm. Um, where a lot of people say, oh, yeah, this is actually true. This is, I relate to that, right? This is happening, you know, around me. Nobody's talking about it, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that spreads very fast, just mm-hmm. like the rhetoric and the ideology, you know, um, spreads very fast. All of that is happening at the same time. And I think that one of the things that's very hard for people to to swallow 
you know, it's nice to feel good about something when it doesn't really, like, when the bad effects don't affect you. Mm -hmm. But, like, once you are starting to feel negative effects from the vortex of bullshit, you know, mm -hmm. then you start to reassess, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if you don't have a job or if, you know, you know, if, you know, you're worried about your kid's education or if there's other kinds of things in your real life mm -hmm. that are that are adversely affected, then you start to re reassess the value of living in a world where, you know, information is just something that makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. you know? I think it's one of the reasons, like, it's really hard for, say, like, mayors to become, you know, these kind of purveyors of fantasy information mm -hmm. because a mayor is living much closer to ground reality, you know. Right. They have to actually talk about real things, like the garbage getting picked up. Trump doesn't have to talk about that. Modi doesn't have to talk about it. He can just sell you a dream, yeah. you know, an ideology, just, you know, hot air. Right. Right. But at some point, everything catches up, you know. Mm -hmm. At some point, you're a, a leader. You have to deal with facts on the ground. And, you, I mean, you know, if people's real life existence is, you know, is such that, like, things are difficult for them and you don't address those things, then I think I think you can't sustain the, the bull****. That's a great optimistic note to end on. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Kush. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to hear other episodes, please go to paw.princeton.edu or subscribe on Apple iTunes. Till next time.